I hope you're familiar with John 14 because this was on the night before Jesus' death, and he made a wonderful promise to all who believe in him in John 14, verse 1. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, notice there, Jesus talked about the Father's house. Uh, and, and so in that phrase there, Jesus is referring to the New Jerusalem. There's, there you go. There's your passage on the screen for you. He's referring to the New Jerusalem, which uh, we're going to look at here in Revelation 21 and 22. And this is the place where God is going to live with his people forever. It's the present heaven where God dwells with angels. And uh, if you're a Christian and if you were to die today, it's it's the place that you would go to. It's a wonderful place, and, and I'm thankful God has given us somewhat of a, of a description of this place, and we're going to see that this place actually descends to a new earth, and it will become the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. So let's have a read from Revelation 21. Uh, we'll just read uh, part of this to start with. I'm starting at verse 9, and uh, we'll, we'll see... Uh, what it says here about uh, the New Jerusalem's general appearance to start with. It says in verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and all the gates twelve angels. And, I, and on the gates the name of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Some of your Bibles might say furlongs. By the way, a, a stadia is, uh, what is it? It's uh, 185 meters. So its uh, length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, and a cubit's about 45 centimeters. That is by human measurements, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. It's found, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprass, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. 
each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I'll stop there for now. So the text here, starting in verse 9, starts to tell us about the capital city of heaven called the New Jerusalem, and it gives us some general appearance here. Uh, there's some on your screen, you'll see someone's drawing of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And so John is, is he's having his vision here. Notice the text tells us that an angel appeared and calls his attention to this city. God wanted John to see it and to be able to write about it. And the first thing he says about it is it's described as a bride. That's an interesting description. Why a bride? Well, because the city draws its character from the people who live there, from the occupants of the city. And so those occupants, of course, consist of the bride, which, if you know what Ephesians 5 says, that was a title originally given to the church. But now at this stage in progressive history, it's encompassing all the redeemed from all the ages. And so the city is is there uh, also described or defined as the wife of the lamb. And if if you remember what chapter 19 mentions, that the marriage has already taken place. So the, uh, the, the bride is now the wife of the lamb. And so John's had this, this incredible vision that began when an, an angel carried him away in the spirit and, when he received the visions that comprise the, the book of Revelation here, the apostle, may I remind you, was a prisoner uh, of the, the Romans, and he was exiled to an island called Patmos, according to chapter 1. But he was transported then from there in this amazing spiritual journey, and he was, he was able to see what unaided human eyes could never see. And it's it these were not just dreams, by the way, they're... They're actually spiritual realities, what he's seeing here. These are real things, real places. And so notice the text tells us the first stop was a great and high mountain. And so the angel's giving John this great vantage point, showing John the holy city. And notice where the city actually came from. Well, we see that the city came down out of heaven from God. That's significant because it tells you the divine origin of the city. It's like Hebrews chapter 11 says that it's a, it's a city whose architect and builder is God. Or as Jesus mentions in, in John 14, that he would go and prepare a place for his people. And so th- this is what he's talking about. And by the way, it should be noted that what's described there is not the creation of heaven. Uh, it is the, the merely the descent of what has already existed and and now is is coming down to the new heaven and the new earth situated right there in the center of the new heaven and the new earth the bible also says here number 3 the city is the throne of the eternal almighty one uh your text says it has the glory of god in it uh, the glory of God is an amazing phrase. It's it's really hard to define, but uh, that glory here is, is going to reach its fullest expression here. 
it's going to be unlimited. It, it will not be confined. And so the, the best way I can think of the glory of God to help you with that amazing phrase is it's the sum total of his attributes. It's the sum total of God's attributes. And often when you see God's glory shown, you, you see it in blazing light. And that's certainly what's happening here in this text. And so number four, we see that the city is brilliant, like a very costly stone. Now, brilliance refers to something from which light radiates. Uh, so John didn't have light bulbs back in his day, but, but the heavenly city here is appearing like a, a very, very big, giant light bulb. And so the city appeared to the apostle like uh, one gigantic precious stone with some source of light inside it. And by the way, Jasper does not refer to the modern stone that we have with the same name, which is actually opaque, by the way. Uh, notice this stone in your text here is something that's translucent, which means it's transparent of, of sorts. And so the word Jasper is probably best understood as referring to something like a diamond, because uh, a diamond is is more uh, able to to shed the light. Uh, something very costly. It's something that's crystal, more like crystal. It's it's more unblemished. And so, to kind of just sum up this first part here of the New Jerusalem's appearance, you have the heaven's capital city is pictured as some like uh, huge flawless diamond reflecting or sorry refracting the brilliant blazing glory of god to the new heaven and the new earth uh, you, you, we will be able to see god's uh, character unhindered unblemished unstopped and be able to to actually love love it and be able to actually survive in in god's glorious presence well the text moves on in verse 12 to start giving us the New Jerusalem's exterior design. And I wish I was able to, to do this justice, and John probably feels the same way, because human language is inadequate to fully describe the magnificence here of the believer's eternal home. But look at the first thing mentioned. The city has a great wall, uh, and this makes the Great Wall of China not so great. But uh, verse 12 tells us some important things. It indicates that, uh, first of all, that the, the city is, is not something that's nebulous, just floating around. It actually has specific dimensions. God has limits on this city wall. It's God also tells us here it's something that can be entered into you can actually leave it through its 12 gates. So you'll see in that person's art there, uh, there's three gates on each side. And uh, the, the text tells us at those gates, there's 12 angels stationed to attend to God's glory and to serve his people. And so the other interesting thing, you'll look at the bottom of that art there, there's, uh, there's, there's different foundation stones and so the gates had, had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on them. And, and these names are going to celebrate for all eternity God's covenant relationship with Israel. Uh, but notice the names 
were arranged symmetrically because it says there's there's three on each side, according to verse twelve. But the the second thing God mentions here is that the great wall has these twelve foundation stones in verse fourteen. So you, again, there's someone's artwork. But uh, these these twelve foundation stones have the names of the twelve apostles written on them. And so for all eternity, those stones will commemorate uh, God's relationship, covenant relationship with the church. Of course, Ephesians 2 says that the apostles are the foundation of the church. And of course, Christ is the cornerstone. But notice at the top of each gate was the name of the tribes of Israel. Now that, that picture artwork there, you'll see Judah mentioned. And then at the bottom of each gate was the name of one of the apostles. And so the layout of those gates is picturing God's favor on all redeemed people, both those under the Old Covenant as well as those under the New Covenant. And then there's a very curious thing that occurs here. We, we see in the text the angel spoke with John. He, he took his measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls and and the results of the angel's measuring here reveals in verse 16, uh, which is number three in your notes, that the city is laid out as a square cube. Oh, by the way, there's your 12 apostles, which uh, uh, it's interesting. Whoever did this has the apostle Paul as one of the 12, which, of course, Jesus made him an apostle. So anyway, they're, they're all going to be... Uh, Measured, uh, mentioned there, and uh, somebody's made a cardboard box of the New Jerusalem and put it overlaid it over Israel in the Middle East there, so you can get an idea on our current globe. I don't know if the the New Earth is going to be the same size because God doesn't say, uh, but we do know the size roughly of the New Jerusalem, and if it was superimposed over our current Earth, that's about the size it would be taking up the Middle East. So what we do know is that the Bible says it's all the sides are equal. 12,000 stadia or furlong is uh, 2,200 kilometers. Now, or if you like miles, that's 1,360 miles. So if you were to compare that to New Zealand, uh, New Zealand's roughly 1,600 kilometers long, north to south. So clearly... What is that? It's uh, 600 kilometers longer than New Zealand. Uh, one commentator by the name of Henry Morris points, he, very interesting what he says. I'll put it on the screen here for you. He points out that a, that a cube-shaped city would be well-suited for the existence of glorified beings. And he says, quote, It should be remembered that the new bodies of the resurrected saints will be like those of angels, no longer limited by gravitational or electromagnetic forces as at present. Thus it will be as easy for the inhabitants to travel vertically as horizontally in the New Jerusalem. Consequently, the streets of the city may well include vertical passageways as well as horizontal avenues and the blocks could be real cubicle blocks instead of square areas between streets, as in a present-day earthly city. So, if you think of that, uh, your, your room 
every every believer gets a room in the new Jerusalem, Jesus says. So your room's going to be pretty big. Uh, now, that's certainly based on certain assumptions, but Morris actually tried to calculate that each person's cube would be approximately 75 acres on each side. Uh, yeah. So, so how big is the city? Well, the city, if it's it's huge, by the way, no problems here. It's actually bigger than Australia. Uh, if somebody said if you were to put it over the United States, it would cover most of the United States. So God's designed the city with plenty of space, and. Uh, you're certainly not going to be uh, stuck in 50 square meters like I currently am. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to having more space. The other interesting thing here is the angel measured the city's wall at 144 cubits. That's equal to about 70 meters, roughly. I don't know. Uh, yeah, roughly 70 meters, anyway. Uh most likely, the measurement is referring there to the thickness, in case you're wondering. So 70 meters is, man, that's a whew, big wall, isn't it? Number four, the Bible also tells us in verse 18, the wall was, again, made of jasper. Remember, jasper is not like our what we currently call jasper. It's more like a diamond-like stone. And not only was the wall translucent, but notice the city itself was pure gold like clear glass. So it's it's pure gold, not, not with impurities in it like most of our gold is. And so the walls of the buildings are clear, probably, by the way, to, so, so that it's able to radiate the glory of God. And then John turns his attention to the foundation stones of the city wall in verses 19 and 20. And he mentions all these, these uh, number five, the, that the colored stones reflect the shining brilliance of God's glory. Now, somebody's put together what we currently call these particular gemstones in a nice little uh, plastic box there for you. If you're interested in buying such a thing, so, that, so that's, what, that's what they look like and what we currently call them. Uh, so, so remember the, the Jasper, uh, you know, currently is kind of reddish in color, but this is more like a diamond. The sapphire there is, is a brilliant blue stone. The, uh, Chalcedony is an agate stone from modern Turkey, which is, uh, kind of a sky blue with, with some colored stripes in it. And of course the emerald it is a green stone and, uh, and then, uh, my my list isn't matching up with the gemstones of the New Jerusalem there, but anyway, so you, you you'll you'll see there's there's all kinds of beautiful colors. God, uh, aren't you thankful? God creates in color, and everything's not just black and white. Uh, but you'll see topaz is kind of a yellow green stone, chrysoprase gold tinted green stone, jacinth is a blue or violet colored stone. At least it was in John's day. Uh, amethyst today is kind of a purple stone, but the the the, the point you, you might ask is that these brightly colored stones are refracting the shining brilliance of God's glory. God's able to show himself off, if you will. And so the scene 
must have been a breathtaking one for John. I, I feel sorry for him trying to describe this, I'm trying to get all the beauty and all the spectrum of the colors uh, mentioned there. And so the next item here on, on our in our text, I should say, of the heavenly city that at least caught John's eye was that number six, the city has 12 gates made of pearl. That's number six. So when, when you sing songs in your hymn book about pearly gates, you can think of this. But but pearls may not be so prized by you these days, although some people do like them. But they in John's day, they were highly prized. And so the pearls, as you can see, not like anything produced by an oyster today, because uh, each gate has to be big enough for people to go in and out, it says. So these were gigantic pearls. And what's the point? Why is God using pearls, you might ask? Well, I don't know, but maybe John Phillips, who is a commentator, gets it right. As he, he Here's what he says. John Phillips, I'm quoting him. I think it's on the screen for you. There we go. So John Phillips says, how appropriate is he's talking about these pearls? He says, all other precious gems are metal are metals or stones, but a pearl is a gem formed within the oyster. The only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound, and around the offending article that has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The glory land is God's answer in Christ to wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to open shame. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl. The saints, as they come and go, will be forever reminded as they pass the gates of glory that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. Think of the size of those gates. Think of the supernatural pearls from which they are made. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by those gates of pearl? Throughout the endless ages, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immensity of the sufferings of Christ. Those pearls hung eternally at the access routes to glory will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them to share his home, end quote. Something to think about. Looking forward to that. Hope you are. So the text carries on here. Uh, if you look in your Bibles at uh, chapter 21, verse 1, we'll keep reading. Chapter 21, verse 1, talks about the 12 gates being the 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then chapter 22 carries on, talking about the new Jerusalem here, and it says, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That ends the description here of the new Jerusalem. So at this point, the we start getting into the new Jerusalem's internal character. And just seeing the magnificent capital city of heaven from a distance would have been amazing enough, but uh, I'm for, uh, we're very fortunate that the angelic guide here takes John on to the inside. And as he entered the city, the, the, the first thing John notes is that the street is pure gold. They're made of the highest quality pure gold. And that pathetic picture on your screen there doesn't do it justice because it's that's obviously not the highest quality gold, since you can't see through it. But uh, again, just take note, God is making things that allow his glory to pass through it. Everything is transparent, so his His own character can blaze unrestricted, uh, which is certainly not happening in that picture, but hopefully it gets the point across that this even the street is pure gold. And so once into the city, the, the first thing John notes in verse 22 is there is no temple. There is no temple. Now, that's really significant to a Jew. Uh, in fact, uh, life centered around the temple and everything that happened there. And so, the, but, but God says there's no need for a temple here in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because it says that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So, so the, the, the temple and the tabernacle were all pointing to the ultimate fulfillment. Going to be no need for anyone to go anywhere to worship God. Uh, what's going to happen is life's going to become worship, and worship will be life, and believers will be constantly in God's presence. Uh, it's not there, there's no division with some huge uh, veil uh, keeping people from God's presence any longer. So, number three, we also see here that the city has no need of the sun drastically different from our present earth, is it not? And so, as you can see, the new earth and new heaven is going to be radically different from what we have now because we're totally dependent on the sun. Of course, life would cease to exist without our sun. Now, why is this city different? Because the text tells us there that the glory of God has illumined it and the lamp is the lamp. So we have everything we need in God and Christ. And then number four, another interesting detail is that the gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. This is something we struggle with because 
our cities don't have big, huge gates. We don't have walls around our cities, at least here in New, in, uh, New Zealand. But in John's day, a lot of cities did. In ancient walled cities, gates would be closed just before dark to keep uh, bad people out. Don't want invaders coming in during the night or criminals or other potentially dangerous people from entering the city. So they would they would close the gates to protect the people inside. And so this truth here depicts the city's complete security. It's a, in other words, it's a place of complete rest and safety and refreshment. There's no chance of anyone being murdered in their sleep or anything else bad happening. And notice in, and then in verse 26 that in heaven, the glory and the honor of the nations are going to dissolve and into the eternal worship of God. In other words, what's important to a lot of people and nations currently is not going to be important in eternity. So people's glory and honor is really important. Nations love that sort of thing and, and uh, almost seem to worship it during the Olympics, but that's gone now. The eternal worship of God is now what is first and most important. And then number six, everybody in heaven is going to be perfectly holy. Uh, why is that? Well, notice uh, verse 27 mentions there's there's nothing unclean anymore. Uh, nobody is there practicing abomination. Nobody's going to be lying and uh, there's no, no, no stealing, you know, none of that sort of things happening in the heavenly city, it says. So only the ones that are going to be there are people whose names were found written in the book of life. Only, only Christians, only believers in Christ will be there. And obviously God has, has, uh, finished the, the curse of sin. So even people's very natures have been changed. There is no sin nature within any of these people anymore. And so that's why people are perfectly holy. And then number seven, uh, there is a river of the water of life, it says. So in heaven, uh, we've already seen there, there's, there's no sea, uh, apparently it doesn't rain. And so this, this water seems to be different from what we call H2O these days. But like everything else, the river, as it says here, was clear as crystal. So that's obviously different from what we have. And again, it's able to refract the very glory of God. But notice where the water's coming from there. It's coming out of God's throne and from the, the throne of the Lamb. He's, he's the source, if you will. And then coming, coming out of that, just picture coming down the, the street there, you also have, in verse 2, there's a tree of life. And God says the tree provides for those who are immortal. Uh, nobody is is able to die in heaven. There will be no death in the tree of life. By the way, it was a, a very familiar Jewish concept to the Hebrews, uh, which expressed blessing. And this tree is uh, filled with blessing. It has 12 kinds of fruit, uh, emphasizing a wonderful variety is going to fill heaven. And John makes a very intriguing observation there. He says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. <laughs> That's an interesting word. At, at first glance, it, 
it seems confusing because we've already seen that there's no illness, there's no death, and there's no injury in heaven. So why do we have this tree? Well, that word healing is your Greek word therapia. Uh, from that word therapia, you might get the English word therapeutic or life-giving or it's something that's health-giving. And so the leaves of the tree could be likened to supernatural vitamins, if you will, that uh, are able to support general health. But the, the, the text does not say whether saints will actually eat the leaves of the tree, though that might be possible. Uh, certainly in the Bible, we've already seen elsewhere in the Bible that uh, angels can eat food. Uh, even Jesus Christ himself, after his resurrection, was able to eat food. So it is conceivable that in heaven, uh, those of us with the spiritual gift of eating will be able to use that spiritual gift and enjoy eating, even though uh, we have glorified bodies. And then the, the text ends here by looking at the New Jerusalem's inhabitants. Uh, so John's tour, remember, has come into the New Jerusalem, and he's noticed some wonderful things, but but notice that life is different for the people who live in the New Jerusalem. Notice, first of all, uh, there will no longer be any curse, verse 3 tells us. So the removal of the curse has <laughs> lots of wonderful things coming with that. Uh, so that means there's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, uh, no more sin. John also mentions the throne of God will be there in verse 3. In other words, God will reign throughout all of eternity. And since God is the sovereign ruler of his universe, that leads then to the end of verse 3, which tells us that God's servants will serve with him. God's people will spend all eternity carrying out an infinite variety of tasks that are coming from a limitless God. So please don't get the impression that some people have of, uh, you know, fat little babies with wings sitting on clouds playing harps and, you know, what a boring life that would be. Bad impression of heaven, okay? That's the limitless mind of God will have wonderful things for you to do. Number four, the saints in heaven will see God's face. How is that even possible, first of all? Think about it. Well, people's very natures have to be radically transformed. Uh, you'll be given a perfectly holy and righteous body. You'll be able to endure the blazing character that's just shining from God's very presence, which, of course, is impossible for you and I to experience now. But God's going to make that possible, and I look forward to that. And then number five, we see here in verse four that the saints will be God's personal possession. His name will be on their foreheads. Everybody's going to be able to see it. It's going to be right there front and center, and that identification will leave no doubt as to who you belong to, and that will be forever. Number six, there'll be no night there. No night there. 
Why is that significant? Well, God is going to deal with the darkness. Remember, there is no sun. Uh, the, the, you know, there's no sun that things are going to be really different. So no night, God's dealing with the darkness. And then, and then if you, if you look, um, what the Bible says in verse five, no night, uh, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord. God will be their light. And then number seven, we see here that the saints heavenly experience will never end. It will never end. So it's not, you know, the, the, the text, notice the text, how it says it, it is forever and ever. And that is truly awesome because this is, this is the only story that I can think of where everyone does truly live happily ever after, like all the great stories say, right? No end. Uh, there is no end to the story. Actually, you could say it's just the beginning. And so, my friends, what we're looking at here is the eternal capital city of heaven. God calls it the New Jerusalem. It's going to be a place of indescribable and unimaginable beauty. From the center of it, you have the brilliant glory of God shining forth through everything, including gold and precious stones that will illuminate the new heaven and the new earth. But of course, the most glorious reality of all, as we've seen here in chapter 22, is that sinful rebels are made perfect, made righteous, uh, so that you and I can then enjoy intimate fellowship with God, and we will get to reign with him forever and ever in something all I can call a sheer joy. One of my favorite authors, one of the great authors of all time, has to be C.S. Lewis. And if you have never read the Chronicles of Narnia, it is a must for every Christian. And when he comes to the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the very last book, the last page of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis had a wonderful quote from the Christ-like figure of Aslan the Lion. And I can't say it any better, so let me just read C.S. Lewis. Lewis says this, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Aslan, the Christ-like figure, is talking to these children. And he says, um, he says, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. There was a real railway accident. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. End quote. And all of God's people can say, Amen. There's no... 
no end. You will live with God forever and ever in this wonderful place called the New Jerusalem. And that artwork, of course, will never do it justice either that you see on your screen, but hopefully it causes you to think of your eternal home. I couldn't really think of a, a theme or a proposition, by the way. Couldn't really think of something. So uh, other than that, that God is great and God is good, I, I don't what, how, how can you sum up this wonderful passage? So praise God, he is great and he is good. You see, certainly see that both of his great characteristics there in the text. So hope you were helped in some way by the text. I'm curious, anybody have any comments or questions?